0: so you've decided to use natural family planning has it blessed your marriage deepened your respect for your body has it made your sex life fantastic do you and your spouse hold hands at sunset and do pink flowers grow around your marital bed if so (laughs) this is not for you Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. And this past Wednesday marked the 50th anniversary of the release of Humanae Vitae, the church's famous encyclical on birth control. And so we have the great pleasure of being joined by Simka Fisher, who is a speaker, uh, a freelance writer who's written for American Magazine and other places, and the author of The Sinner's Guide to Natural Family Planning. Simca, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Joe. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: So, as I just mentioned, uh, the encyclical Humanae Vitae by Pope Paul VI has just turned 50. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that I know people sometimes raise is why a bunch of celibate churchmen are opining on issues of sexuality anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. what what should we take uh, with Humanae Vitae? Can we can it really stand its ground? You know, does it really have anything to say to married people and the sexually active um, about intimacy within the context of marriage like why is it still relevant?
1: Well, the first thing that struck me about reading Humanae Vitae which I did for the first time a couple of years ago I read it kind of with bated breath sort of crossing my fingers hoping I hadn't been spreading heresy and I read it and sure enough I was I was okay <laughs> <laughs> Vitae is very short. It's very readable It's not what most people think of when they see when they hear the word encyclical So before we by answer your question, I would just I would, I would really encourage people to read it for themselves because you've probably heard, I heard somebody um, dismiss it as clergy splaining the other day, which cracked me up because he's the Pope. He's supposed to be clergy splaining, that's his job. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, the thing about the thing about Humani is that it was it was written directly in response to a question that lay people were asking. They were saying, "Look, we're married. We're having a hard time here. We're trying to live in the modern world. We're trying to live by Catholic sexual ethics, and we're finding it a little bit difficult. Can you accommodate us here? Can you make some changes? Can you sort of get with the modern world?" And he was responding directly to them, and what he said was not only. Will the church not change its teaching on this? The church cannot change its teaching on this because it reflects directly the way that God made people to be. And it, it it directly reflects the dignity that people are called to, that all people are called to, whether they're married or not married. And the other thing that struck me when I was reading it, and again, it's very, very short, and I really encourage people to read it, was he didn't approach The topic sort of coming down from on high and slamming his fist down and telling people, you know, shape up and stop being so gross and just do what the chair tells you to do and don't question it. His tone was very gentle and very encouraging and very it was just it was very encouraging and it understood very well. It seemed like it under it seemed to me that he understood very well that things were very difficult, that things could be very difficult for married people, especially in the modern world, trying to live by ancient rules that he knew very well that he was an old celibate white man and didn't necessarily know everything that was going on in the individual lives of individual people. And he took that into account. Just that in itself, even almost as much as the actual things that he said, just the tone that he took was very moving to me. And he even he even used a sort of a sense of humor when he was talking about it. He was very humble and he tried to, and, and it seemed to me that he tried to convey that he had seen what god wants for humanity and he just wanted to share it with people and that was and that was what i took away from it and i know that not everybody necessarily gets that same thing when they read *Humani vitae but i think if people read it with an ear to to hearing the actual man behind it it doesn't come down as an out of touch pie in the sky dry abstract theological treatise at all it comes across as somebody who loves god very much and knows a little bit of how much god loves us and wants us to sort of have a part in it and that's what the church is teaching on sexuality is about it's about having a part in what god wants for us
0: that's beautifully put i was struck by something i actually saw an edifying kind of exchange on facebook did you um, <laughs> yeah well almost it was <laughs> a layman complaining about this priest speaking out on the issue of contraception and mm-hmm. saying oh you know you're a celibate, you don't even know what it's like. The priest responded by being like, look, I counsel hundreds of marriages and you're in one. He kind of responded by, in some ways, I'm seeing a much bigger picture of this as something of a neutral outsider. So I thought it was an interesting uh, response. I would never really heard someone uh, take on that.
1: Yeah, sitting in the confessional and hearing hearing all the secret thoughts of many laid bare, it gives you a certain a certain perspective that you don't get right. if you just It's, to it's easy to take the kind
0: of sex is no big deal approach until you actually take it seriously and say, oh, actually, it turns out it is. And so one of the things that struck me in reading more about this is Humanae Vitae was in some ways charting new territory. Uh, so there'd been prior church documents, for example, *Casti Canubi, like forbids condom use. Mm-hmm. But when the pill came out, It was revolutionary. And so people Mm -hmm. were legitimately wondering, okay, we know we can't use condoms because that interrupts the sexual act, but does birth control, like does the pill, you know, uh, there's all sorts of things that can increase or decrease your fertility naturally. So why is it wrong to totally control it or to totally stop it? That seemed to be kind of the the direction of the conversation. So you're right that uh, he comes out and he reiterates the church's teaching, but he does a very good job of both recognizing the sort of medical unknowns at the time mm-hmm. and still showing how those principles applied uh, vis-a-vis birth control and the pill and why it's, why it's still forbidden. But what do we say, or what in your view, what should we say to those people who are still hoping for some sort of change to the church's teaching, who think, well, this time, you know, Pope Francis or the next council right. or fill in the blank is going right, to right. totally do a 180 and, and allow us to do what we thought we were going to get to do in 1968.
1: Right. Well, the strange thing, I I do come across Catholics who say this a lot, and they're just waiting and hoping for the church to change. And it's a strange thing, because it's not as if it's an experiment that we haven't tried already. Most of the world already has changed and has adopted contraception as the norm. In fact, like, the, it's seen as the responsible, dutiful thing to do. And it's just, you know, as soon as a girl turns 13 or 14, she goes on the pill, or she has an IUD, or she has some other, you know, some other form of birth control. This is just normal. And we see what's happened. (laughs) It's not as if, it's not as if we're wondering, you know, we should try this wonderful new thing and see and, 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 and good things will come of it. We can already see that good has not come of it. There are absolutely some ways in which life has become easier if you can just pop a pill and then you don't have to worry about it. Um, that's definitely easier than charting and abstaining. It's certainly easier than that. But along with that ease and along with that practicality has come a huge cloud of Terrible suffering that mostly lands on women and secondarily on children and also on men and on society in general. I mean, we've been seeing the results of widespread contraception for decades and decades now, and it's not good. It's not a good thing. There's always going to be suffering in the world. There's suffering when you use natural family planning. There's suffering when you don't have any kind of natural, any kind of family planning or any kind of, you know, way of regulating birth. But it's very demonstrable how many ill effects come when contraception is widespread. I want to tell myself that they're just fooling themselves, but it almost seems disingenuous to me when people act as if, if only the church would change, then we would find out how much easier life could be. We've already seen what happens. And and Paul VI predicted all of those things happening. I mean, that's one of the more amazing things about Human Vitae. He explained what would happen if contraception were used, introduced into marriage, and also introduced into you know sexual relations outside of marriage um you know women women are degraded now we see you know you go on into an airplane and half the guys are sitting there looking at porn on their phones and they're not even embarrassed about it you know say what you will about previous decades that did not used to be the norm and to me it's very plain that there is a direct line of connection between the first revolution and the the sort of continuing debacle, the rolling debacle of the sexual revolution that we've seen ever since then.
0: Yeah, there was actually a first thing, i say, that really gets to the same point, that the sexual revolution's consequences disproportionately fell on women and yeah. resulted in kind of the uh, degradation of and, and decreased uh, respect for women. Uh, Richard Stith, who I believe is a Protestant, wrote it called Her Choice, Her Problem. And he mm-hmm. was focusing specifically on Roe v. Wade, that mm-hmm. prior to legalized abortion, both parties were responsible for their sexuality so if they hooked up and she got pregnant he was responsible as much as she was and so there were shotgun weddings there were arrangements made to take care of the kid or put the child up for adoption or you name it but once abortion becomes legalized and it's her issue then it it all devolves onto the woman and so a woman who chooses not to abort her child is treated as solely to blame for the existence of the right. child. And it's the world.
1: irresponsible. She should have she right. should have had double triple birth control and then she should have gotten an early abortion and she should have done all of these things. Now, I don't want to <laughs> I can almost hear some of my friends sort of yelling in my head in response to what I just said previously. And I do not want to in any way gild the past. I mean, it, it, it <sighs> there's a reason that there was a sexual revolution. There's a reason why feminism Took off. It was it was feminism was a necessary thing, and I don't mean to conflate two things and say that the sexual revolution is the same as feminism. But you know, in the past, what people say, well, Paul the Sixth, Paul the Sixth said that they will see the degradation of women if contraception is widespread. But in the past, we used to have all this degradation of women. It just took a different form, and to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, I in the year 1930 or something, I would not be sitting here looking at my laptop that I use to work and talking on a radio show about sex, that would not be something that I would be able to get away with.
0: And not just because of the lack
1: of laptops. (laughs) Right. Not just because (laughs) of the lack of laptops. I mean, there, there were, there were problems. There were problems that needed to be addressed and there were attitudes toward women, which were not acceptable. And there were, um, and that, and I'm talking about inside of marriage and outside of marriage. And there were, there were issues that needed to be addressed. However, it was not, it was one of those things where we made a correction and then we way the heck overcorrected <laughs> and that's, and that's what happened. And that's what, and that is what Paul VI was talking about. And I still think that his, um, you know, without meaning to, to sort of put on rosy glasses and say that everything was wonderful in the past and we should just go back to the fifties or something. Um, I, I believe that his predictions that he made about what would happen are absolutely true and absolutely have been a bad trade, I guess you could say.
0: Your book, obviously, is focused on natural family planning or NFP. I mean, it's right there in the title. And some of the listeners may not be familiar with what that is or why it's allowed by the church, because to a lot of people, when they hear natural family planning, they just hear like Catholic contraception. And it seems like legalese are like we're just splitting hairs. Can you give maybe a little brief explanation of what it is and why it's different, why it's allowed?
1: I can um, well, so natural family planning is, at its heart, it's really just information. What it is, is, is there's various methods of doing it. But it's just different systems for tracking a woman's fertility cycles so that she knows when she's infertile and when she's fertile. And there are different various ways of doing it. The, my f- current favorite um, is the Marquette method, which uh, you, you use, you check hormone levels in your urine, and you put it into a little monitor, and a little picture shows up, and it tells you exactly what it's going on, and it's very, very useful. And then you decide, do I want to have a baby or do I not want to have a baby, and then you act accordingly. And that's all it is. It's information, and you decide what to do with it. That's what it is, and that's what makes it different from other forms of uh what, well, well, it's what makes it different from contraception because. Our cycles are naturally made in such a way that some parts of the month were fertile and some parts of the month were infertile. That's what our bodies are already like. That's how God made us. So if all we're doing is deciding that we're either going to have sex or not have sex at different times during the month, all we're doing is going along with the way that our bodies are already made. We're not changing the sexual act. We're not changing our bodies. We're not changing anything. We're just working along with the way things already are. Yeah, um, I think
0: one of the confusions people have is they often think that the church only thinks you should have sex for the purpose of having children, that the only, you know, if if you are not particularly fertile then you can't have sex would be the logical kind of conclusion
1: from Yeah, and from I've that. Heard and people, that's I've heard true. Catholics argue that 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 because, you know, because your intent is not to have a child then then therefore you must be doing you must be doing it contraceptively or something like that. And that's <laughs> It's not in scripture. It's not in tradition. It's not really anywhere in Catholic not thought. In I don't really know where that comes from, to be honest with you. It, it's just, I mean, the, the Catholics, what Catholics teach, what the Catholic Church teaches is that sex has two, has two purposes for, to, for, it has a unit of purpose and it has a procreative purpose. And procreative means with the aid of God creating a new human being, which is kind of a big deal. And it also has a unit of purpose, which is also kind of a big deal because there's nothing else on earth that is like sex. I mean, it's. I don't even know what to say. I've been married for 20 years and I still don't even know what to say about
0: it, to be honest. I mean, it's this radical mystery. The church talks about the two becoming one flesh. And then you also have the two people producing a third person. In a way, it's one of the best, although still really radically imperfect analogies or images of the inner life of the Trinity. I mean, you want to use that kind of claim very kind of cautiously. Anytime you compare anything to the Trinity, you have to put a lot of asterisks and say there are a lot of differences. But the way that that unity and the fecundity and like sending forth of someone new is just incredibly powerful. What struck me, I mean, it's very clear to see why contraception cuts off the procreative, Side, Especially with something like birth control or a condom where you're purposely stopping a third person from entering the picture. What right. I didn't see immediately is a way chemical birth control like the pill can still block the unitive part. And John Paul II had a good explanation of this, that you're yeah. holding back your maternity or your paternity. You're saying I'm going to give you everything other than my potential maternity. I'm going to give you everything other than my potential paternity. So you're right. giving everything other than the most intimate familial part of who you are to your spouse, and so it's a partial kind of union. You're corrupting it by being closed off in that in that way to life.
1: Uh, yeah, sure, and and I mean, not only is it, and it's not just some kind of metaphysical thing also but i mean we also know that the pill has all kinds of effects on people's relationships it changes how um it changes how women perceive men it changes what kind of men women are attracted to um you know it gives and 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 it gives you migraines and some (laughs) it does terrible things to women's bodies which also has a bad effect on your on your Uh, uh, on your unity with your husband as you as you can imagine if you're sick all the time or if you have migraines all the time or if you're in a terrible mood all the time it affects it affects women's moods so and this is true of every form of contraception except possibly for condoms i mean i think that probably has the fewest bad uh physiological side effects of any kind of contraception that i know of all the rest of them are a nightmare a complete nightmare i mean and this is talk about talk about the, the onus of it falling on women. You know, they recently decided they were they were going to stop making this um, kind of birth control called assure, which is these two uh, metal coils <laughs> that they implant in you and they cause co- chron- scarring and chronic inflammation. And that prevents you from getting pregnant. Wow. Do you think they would do that to men?
0: <laughs> well, actually, that was one of the issues is male contraceptives were actually forbidden, at least some of the the trial ones. They were perceived as too dangerous for men.
1: They did trials on them, and they found out that they had some unpleasant side effects and some dangerous side effects, and they said, "Well, well, we can't let that happen. And that was the right choice. Obviously, I'm not saying that men should suffer, but why is it all right for women to suffer? It's not. It's not all right for women to suffer. And natural family planning is the one that says, let's just leave women alone. Let's just let women's bodies be as they are. You know, I mean, sometimes women have, you know, sometimes they have, they, they have issues that need correcting by surgery or by whatever. But in, in its basic form, if you're, uh, if you're a healthy, functioning human being, natural family planning just lets you go because you are as God made you. And it doesn't fix you. It doesn't see you as a problem or a disease. It doesn't see your fertility as a disease. It just, it just in, in objectively respects your body as it is.
0: And especially among like college age women who go like totally organic, totally vegan, because they don't want to put anything unnatural in their body. Yeah. And without a second thought, they're pumping their bodies full of these chemicals that are totally foreign. Right. Uh, there yeah. have been problems in the UK. Uh, there's, they say the cleanup costs are in the billions of dollars if they were to remove all of the artificial birth control from the water. But it's yeah. producing like intersex fish. Yes. And so it's having these dramatic effects on other living creatures. And we're not even taking a second look to say, Hey, is this a smart thing to just be like blithely giving out to 13 year olds?
1: Right. And and that's the thing. Sexuality is, and that's why I said it's different from anything else in the entire world, because you can say that, you know, why should an old celibate white man care, care what happens in the privacy of my bedroom? But in fact, the private intimate sexual lives of a single couple Affects the entire world, literally, it affects the environment in the way that you just described, and also has a million tiny little effects on how we perceive each other, how we perceive children, how we perceive the suffering of others. It's just, it's at the center. It's at the center of who we are. Our sexuality is at the center of who we are. And that doesn't mean that we're obsessed with sex, and it doesn't mean that we're afraid of sex, and it doesn't mean that we're uptight about sex. It's just acknowledging it's a big deal. And you can't mess with it without causing a million bad effects that you never looked for. And, and some very, and some very big, terrible effects, a lot of little ones and some very large, terrible effects as well.
0: So if the world paints too rosy of a picture of the pill, ignoring some of the downsides, Mm -hmm. I think we Catholics can sometimes be guilty of the opposite of painting too rosy a picture of NFP. And I like, I want to read a little bit of the back of your book Because I think it's very clever. It says, So, you've decided to use natural family planning. Has it blessed your marriage? Deepened your respect for your body? Has it made your sex life fantastic? Do you and your spouse hold hands at sunset and do pink flowers grow around your marital bed? If so, (laughs) this book is not for you. (laughs) And then it goes on, and for those who try NFP and find that it's just making their life awful or they're feeling judged or judgy, these are the people... Who you're writing NF like this book for the Center's Guide to NFP? So, can you talk a little bit about uh, the nitty gritty? Uh, how do we have these kind of conversations with couples or people who may be listening to this right now and saying, "I'm interested in this, but I want to know yeah. the full thing. Don't like leave out the fine print."
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, this is a problem that a lot of people face because it's you you want to teach people about natural family planning and you want to sort of uh, draw their attention to, uh, you know, the bad side effects of contraception, but you don't want to. And people are a lot of people are not ready to hear it because they're so used They they grew up with birth control. It, it is so ubiquitous and introducing the idea of some radically new way of life, because that's what it is. It's really a way of life. It's not just something that you do once a month or once a day. It's something that you really have to really dedicate yourself to and you have to have the participation of both spouses so it is kind of a big deal it's a commitment um it's sometimes hard for people to hear that when people show up in marriage preparation maybe they've already been living together for several years maybe they already have children together this is very common so when for instance uh, marriage preparation couples need to introduce the idea of natural family planning to people who've never heard it before very often what they do is say it's wonderful you're going to love it It's, you know, it's going, it will divorce proof your marriage and you'll have this honeymoon effect once a month and all these, you know, all the, it'll improve your communication and all these things. And then they try it and then they find out that like, well, in fact, what often happens is that you're abstaining right when, (laughs) if you don't want to have a baby, you're going to be abstaining when the woman is ovulating. And that's when she, guess what, actually wants to have sex the most because that's how our bodies are made. Our bodies are ordered toward becoming pregnant. So that is when a woman's desire is the most. And that's also when a woman happens to be most attractive to a man is when she's ovulating because of, you know, pheromones and whatnot. So that's one thing is that you, and you realize pretty quickly that the time when you most especially want to have sex is when you can't if, if you're trying not to have a baby right then and there. And then. So that's the first thing. You have to abstain when you don't necessarily want to abstain and that stinks especially if you know you're finally married and you think, "Woo, now we can do whatever we want." No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first thing. The second thing and in my in my experience and in talking to a lot of other people in their experience as well, the harder thing was really the kind of uh, miscommunication and hurt feelings and bad feeling that comes in When there are two people trying to figure out how to make these sacrifices and how to understand each other and how to convey important ideas to each other, when there's all this this tension, I mean, there's a lot of tension around it, not being able to do what you want to do and not necessarily always being on the same page about it. Maybe one person, one of the spouses wants to have a baby and the other one doesn't. It sort of amps up the pressure on whatever issues you already have in your marriage. And this is something that I speak about in my book. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure I'm uh, I'm right about this. I I said that natural family planning doesn't usually actually introduce problems into a marriage. What it does is it sort of puts a magnifying glass on existing problems that already existed, but which you could pretty easily paper over if you didn't have to make a lot of difficult sacrifices. (laughs) And what happens when you put a magnifying glass on something is that, you know, you get a very good look at it, but you also get a very good look at. Well, you've seen something under, under a microscope yeah. or under a magnifying glass. It doesn't always look as smooth and pretty as it did from a distance. Sometimes it looks kind of horrible. <laughs> and that is what happens a lot of the time when people have that, um, uh, have that first really close look at what their relationship is with each other, what their relationship is with God, what their image of themselves is, what, where their self-worth lies, how willing they are to make sacrifices for each other, how willing they are. To let the other person make sacrifices for them, you know how gracious can you be under pressure? How gracious can you be under pressure for a really long time? This kind of thing, and these are the issues that you sort of force to deal with um, when you're dealing with when when you're committed to natural family planning. Now, some people don't experience it this way. I have talked to real life people who use natural family planning, and you know they like it. It's fine. They don't mind. The abstaining, they get along well. They have a really strong relationship. They have the right kind of temperaments. They have the right kind of, I don't know, they have the right kind of circumstances. They communicate very well and they just don't find it all that difficult. And they're, you know, they're grateful to God that 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 it's not that difficult for them and they can use it to, uh, to achieve or to avoid a pregnancy as they desire. And, and that's the end of it. And it's just not, and it's just not that big of a deal for them. But for a lot of other people, it really is a big deal and. If you're willing to sort of go through it and to sort of put yourself under that microscope and to and to sort of let God work on the problems that are exposed, then the rewards that you reap are tremendous, just completely tremendous. I mean, I mentioned before that I've been married for over 20 years now, and it's taken us probably about that long to understand what people mean when they talk about the rewards of natural family planning it's taken a it's taken kind of a long time for us to understand how it is that that works, and we are both at this point very grateful for the for the trouble and the trials and the tribulations that we went through while we' worked our way through it, but it was hard it really was hard yeah I'm, and, I'm
0: grateful for your honesty with that. I was actually so I was at a bar once with mm-hmm. a married friend and a priest' friend, and they both shared the difficulties of living out chastity in their particular states of life the The married friend traveled a fair amount for work and I think was also engaged in NFP with his wife. So whatever they decided, whatever her cycle, if he had a work event, he just couldn't, you know, he couldn't be there. So there were all sorts of just very normal um, calls to chastity into, you know, temporary celibacy even uh, because he's out of town. So I think a lot of times when we talk about chastity, like you said, it's like chastity is a thing you do until marriage and then all bets are off so right. what's a better way i mean if you were if you were approaching someone who thought about chastity in that way i hear people yeah. confuse chastity and celibacy all the time yeah, yeah, which sure. suggests that they have that view like it's just don't have sex until marriage like that's right. the idea of chastity can you give us a better uh, vision of what that looks like within the context of marriage.
1: As you point out chastity and celibacy are not the same thing. It would be entirely possible to be celibate but not chaste, <laughs> and it's possible to be chaste but not celibate. I think really at the heart of chastity is uh well, it's what John Paul II would call personalism, which means fully approaching and accepting the other person as as a full human being. That's not really a very good. That's not, look up personalism everybody. Find I get a better definition of it. <laughs> But I think that, um, when we try to impose chastity as a set of rules of things that you can't do, that's that is that's like saying, um, you know, what's the perfect Thanksgiving dinner? Well, not jello. It's like, well, all right, that's true, but (laughs) that doesn't really tell you anything about what a Thanksgiving dinner is like, you know? It's really not about what's not what's not in there. It's about approaching a human another human being and also approaching yourself with dignity and respect. And sometimes that takes different forms depending on what your situation is. I mean, if you are a married couple, and you've decided that you're not you don't want to have a baby this month that you don't want to get pregnant this month, then you're but you're still but you're still married to each other. It's not as if you're suddenly back to dating, and you can't touch each other or something like that. There are different levels of there, there are different, there are different ways to express chastity depending on your situation, depending on your state in life, and depending on what your relationship is with another human being. But really, at the heart of chastity is respect for yourself and respect for another person, as expressed through your body. I guess.
0: You know, That's I like that, uh, definition, but it's well, something along
1: those lines. I like, so I like the way you're
0: going with it because one of the other things that I think is surprising to a lot of people is that married couples can fall into the sin of lust with each other. Now, I, I want to be careful when I, I say this. I'm not saying, oh, married couples shouldn't be like sexually attracted or you shouldn't want to, but there are ways of approaching your spouse as an object, ways of approaching your spouse as a means to an end of your own sexual gratification without yeah. appreciating them as your helpmate, as your other, as, as a human person made in the image of God. And yeah. in that sense... You know, it isn't even just about the action. You can be failing in chastity internally because the virtues all operate on the level of the will. And so if you're willing something, even if the external circumstances look fine, uh, you can still be approaching it with the wrong attitude and kind of the wrong mentality. You know, speaking of mentalities, anytime we talk about NFP, there's always this need to talk about just reasons because Pope Paul VI talks about using natural family planning to space births when there's a just reason to and that's given a lot of confusion to a lot of people and I appreciate it that it's one of the very first things that you tackle um, in the book could maybe give a, a couple words to what the church doesn't do in terms of just like providing us a list and then how we should understand this kind of intentionally vague phrasing
1: I think, I mean, that was the name of one of the chapters that I wrote. Why doesn't the church just make a list? <laughs> because people are driving themselves crazy, trying to be good Catholics, trying to figure out, do I have a good enough reason to avoid having a baby right now? Or occasionally, do I have a good enough reason to try to have a baby right now? That comes up, that comes up too. Um people trying to discern whether their reasons are good enough, whether they're just enough, whether they're serious enough. And sometimes people will say, well, why doesn't the church just say like, are you above the poverty line or below the poverty line? Are you, um, you know, do you have a good marriage or a bad marriage? Are you living in a concentration camp or are you living in a mansion? Just, you know, clear things up for us. People want the church to be very clear about these things so that they can know whether they're doing it right or they're not doing it right. And I remember the, the extreme frustration of wishing that the church would just be more clear so that I would know for sure whether I was doing it right or not. And what I eventually came to realize is that, it, as you say, the church's vagueness was, is, is, it was intentional. It wasn't just that the church never got around to explaining it or that the church, you know, was shying away from this issue, which is something the church does not tend to do is <laughs> shy away from right. issues. <laughs> but the reason that it was left, um, non-specific is because it, what, what constitutes a just reason, a good enough reason to use natural family planning to avoid pregnancy, varies from couple to couple and it varies from couple to couple at different times in their marriage. Um there are many many different reasons why you might feel that it would be a good idea not to have a baby right now. And what could be a good a good enough reason for me would not be a good enough reason for somebody else. I grew up in poverty when we were first married for many years we were in extreme poverty and to me that that probably would have been a good enough reason to avoid having a baby because we had a lot of we had a lot of instability we had a lot of need we were really in dire straits for a good long time but i can imagine somebody who grew up wealthy and then who fell on hard times and was sort of just getting by and they never were in danger of having their heat turned off and they never ran out of food and they didn't have to um You know, they didn't have to stuff newspapers in their shoes or anything like that, but they were, they had much, much less money than they normally did. And this threw them into a state of complete panic. And to them, this would be a huge catastrophe because it would feel like they were in an emergency situation, even if objectively speaking, they had much, much more money than I did, for instance. So you can see that if the church said, well, if you're making, you know, $55,000 a year, then... You don't have a good enough reason to avoid pregnancy. Like that just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't right. work. It's just, it's not. And, 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 and there's another reason for it, why the church doesn't spell these things out. It's not just that it would be too hard to make rules that would be consistent for everybody, that would, that would be fair for everybody. The other reason is because there is so much to be gained by working these things out in your own heart with God
0: and with your spouse
1: and with your spouse. Yeah. The process of looking at yourself honestly, the process of talking about it, the process of praying about it, and the process of, uh, you know, making decisions under a lot of pressure. It does things to you. It makes you, it makes you grow up and makes you, it enlarges your heart. It's something that. <laughs> I think my sister wrote an essay about it one time where she said that it's not its not a transactional encounter. It's not as if we're trying to like satisfy this, this hungry God who needs a certain amount of sacrifices per, per month or per marriage or something like that, and you can check off the boxes and you know you've done your share. Christ comes to us as a lover. If you treat that encounter as transactional, it's a horrible insult and it's a horrible loss for you. You've missed out on something. In our marriages, we're supposed to encounter Christ in in that way, in that very personal way. And you can't be you can't have a, a, a transactional mindset when you're meeting your lover. And <laughs> that's something that's something to keep in mind when people are struggling with these things, and when they're afraid that you know God is going to be angry at them because they had a baby in next year instead of this year, or something like that. That's just not that's not how God thinks of us, and it's certainly not how he wants us to think of ourselves
0: the, uh, when, the legalism like you said if you were to approach marriage with the same kind of legalism with which we want to approach god like give me a to-do list i'll do it and then i'll get a reward
1: right i think if you approach
0: yeah. your marriage that way like what's the bare minimum i can do to still right. be like your wife or a good wife that attitude that question itself is kind of an insult
1: it is and it's also deprives us that interesting thing that i've been thinking of lately. When we were talking about chastity, I mean, we were talking about how we encounter our spouses, how we, how we treat our spouse's body and how we think of our spouses and how we approach our spouses. But it also has to do with, I mean, chastity is also a personal thing and it has to do with how we see our own bodies and how we see, how, how we see our own sense of, I don't know, self dignity or self worth or something like that in, in the eyes of God. It's something that that's something that natural family planning over the long term <laughs> has taught me first, first about how to how to see my husband, but also about how to see myself and how to have respect for myself, which is something that God absolutely wants us to do. He doesn't want us to just to turn ourselves into some kind of, um. well, especially for women, you know, Catholic women sometimes want to turn themselves into sort of into into doormats or into, you know, incubators or something and think that, you know, the more children that we can have, the more pious we are. And that's such a reductive point of view. That's not how God sees us. He would be horrified if somebody else saw us that way. And he doesn't want us to see ourselves that way. And for the viewers, I want
0: to just point out that uh, Simka has a lot of children. So she's saying this as the mother of a large family. (laughs) She would benefit from this rubric, but still recognizes it as wrong.
1: Yeah. No, and 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 that's the other thing. I mean, sometimes sometimes when we look at other couples, we can say, "Oh my gosh, she has 10 children. You know, he must be, you know, he he must he must be at her all the time." <laughs> you know, she she just thinks of herself as a as a as a milk cow or something like that, and it's not I'm I'm very glad to have every single one of my children. So, <laughs> when we look at it's a funny thing because we we're talking about um, you know, uh devout Catholic couples judging couples who have you know zero children or one child or a few children and saying oh they must not be holy enough or something like that and that's wrong it's also very wrong to look at large families and to make assumptions that well they must be overly pious or they must be legalistic or rigid or something like that you you just you just don't know you really just don't know what goes on inside a marriage and it's really none of our business <laughs> so that's one of the things that I talk about a lot in my book is just you know our own sex lives and our own relationship with with our spouses and with God. That is more than enough to keep us busy, really. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to be worrying about other people's The
0: the kind of radical uniqueness, you know, the fact that there's not just a one size fits all solution to this. You were talking about before that what may be an easily bearable situation to one couple feels totally overwhelming to another. Uh, right, reminds me right. of another thing the church talks about and uh salvici dolores which is the churches in the jp2 wrote an encyclical on suffering and he talks about how there's an inherently subjective dimension to suffering so you can't just play the suffering olympics where like my suffering is worse than your suffering or yours is you know they're just not comparable because your suffering is your suffering and your cross is your cross for good and for ill and it's it's very tempting to want to just say okay who has it worse? Who has legitimate excuses for whatever? And I think we we take that same wrong attitude um, when we talk about just reasons to, to use or not use natural family planning. Um, but since we've already talked about those who contracept and we've talked about NFP now, there's one other group I want to talk about, which are those Catholics who you call in the book providentialists who may or may not actively pursue pregnancy but do nothing to postpone it. Including yeah. NFP, could you maybe say a few words to that, and maybe the the distinction between the two,
1: uh, between between... Uh, between
0: NFP, sorry, between NFP users and providentialists, and the kind of oh. umbrella within the church
1: here. Sure. Um. I mean, well, the, the providentialists that I know, I mean, for the most part, they just they have a particular charism where they just feel that they they individually are not called to do anything in particular to space or plan or um, avoid pregnancy but just take just take what comes you know do what the spirit moves them to do and and if there's a baby there's a baby if there's not there's not i mean i know i know people who have and i i I know some providentialists who have very big families you know they have 13 or 14 children i know some providentialists who only have a few children because that is what god has given to them um it's sometimes presented as sort of the holier option and i'm not comfortable with that myself because as you were saying before, it's, it, I mean, people's individual circumstances are so very different from each other. I have a very high tolerance for chaos, for instance. I'm, you know, I happen to be sitting on the floor right now because my bed <laughs> is too messy. When I'm not locked in my bedroom. And it doesn't bother me because this is how I live. I don't care. This is how I get stuff done. You know, I'm 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 a pretty successful person. I've got you know I I I make a decent amount of money. I've got ten children. I love my husband. I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, I, I walk upright and everything. But <laughs> but for other people in my circumstances, they would feel like things are absolutely falling apart. So I think you can um you know I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but uh, I I don't I don't think that providentialists are necessarily more trusting in god than other people which is how it's presented sometimes i think they just have a sort of a different temperament and they have a different calling and just like we have franciscans and we have jesuits and we have dominicans and they all have a sort of a different approach to spirituality one is not better than the other it's just that people are different and marriages are different and there's another thing sometimes you could be called to providentialism for a time and then decide, okay, that's enough. Now we need to use natural family planning. I've seen that a lot of the time. Young married couples come on to, you know, they have a blog that says the providentialist blog. And I don't know if there actually is such a blog just to, just to cover my butt here. <laughs> just, I'm just picking a name out of the air. And they say, we will do whatever God wants from us. We will joyfully accept children. And then six years later, they have five children. And they're like, okay, I've made a mistake. <laughs> I've changed my mind. <laughs> and they suddenly realize that NFP isn't for sinners after all so <laughs> uh does that answer your question it, the- it does
0: <laughs> I think a lot of what you're saying gets down to the core principle that there are some things we can't morally do as Catholics because it, yeah. it disrupts the nature of the sexual act but if yeah. it's permitted and it's up to your individual discernment uh, with right. your spouse and with God
1: with your spouse maybe yes. we shouldn't
0: stand back and, and judge a bunch of other couples for what might or may not be happening in their marriage
1: right. And sometimes you can run it. I just have to put in a little side note. Sometimes you run into uh, situations where the husband would like to be a providentialist and the wife would like to use natural family planning. And I generally vote for the wife getting to decide because she's the one who has to be pregnant and give birth. So if she wants to space out them babies, she gets to space out them babies. And the husband doesn't get to put a guilt trip on her for not trusting God enough. I just want to get that out there. Seems like a pretty convincing argument, I suppose. I think so. (laughs) Final question.
0: Um... Listeners who may be encountering NFP for the first time in this episode, can you give them any resources, including your own book and your own writings, uh, that you would recommend that they check out after the show?
1: Yeah, I mean, if they're looking for my book, my book does not give any information on how to chart. A few people have made that mistake. It does not te- teach you how to chart. You can go to... Um, Creighton, you can go to Billings, you can go to Marquette, those are different um a couple to couple league. There's a website called iusenfp.com I think it's dot com. And I think that's the site that actually has a quiz to help you figure out which method might be the best for you. And that's very helpful because, you know, people have different circumstances, they have different body situations going on. So that could help you to decide which method, just in practical terms, you would like to use. Um, again, I vote for Marquette because it's just so easy. (laughs) It's just so objective and easy and you don't have to figure anything out. You just do what it says. So, so I like that. Um, my book is about, my book is about basically how to live, how to have a relationship with your spouse and with God and with the rest of the world while you're doing NFP. Um, I recently came across a book by Patrick Coffin. It's called Sex au Natural. And it's about, and it gives sort of an overview of the theological reasoning behind the ban on contraception and the acceptance of NFP in the Catholic church. It's written for Catholics and it's in pretty, it, I haven't read the whole thing yet. I'll be honest with you, but a lot of people recommend it as a really good, if, if you're looking for arguments, if you're looking for logical arguments, there's also a talk by Janet Smith, who's been sort of in the, in the fields for a good long time, a, a talk called contraception. Why not? And if you can get your hands on that, I think it must be on the internet somewhere. Um, I know that a lot of people felt that they, came to a much better understanding of the reasoning behind it once they heard once they heard that talk. It's very it's very persuasive and she's a smart lady.
0: I might throw in one resource, although this is more philosophical, but for people who are maybe want more of an academic take on the distinction between natural family planning and contraception, there's an essay by Elizabeth Anscombe, A-N-S-C-O-M-B-E, called I believe it's called on contraception and chastity. It may just be called contraception and chastity, but she looks at how the end might be the same. Yeah. Of like not wanting to have a child right now, but the means are totally different. And that if the means are immoral, that makes the whole act immoral. You know, trying to impress a girl by bringing flowers is great. Trying to impress a girl by like blowing up a bank isn't. And so (laughs) even if you have the same purpose in both cases, Way or I use you the example to of
1: it. if your grandmother is going to leave you uh, her, her all of her money and her will, you could either, you know, sit by her t- bedside and keep her company while she dies and then collect the money, or you could put a pillow over her face and kill her and then collect all the money. Like you had the same goal, but the means were different, and you can see how that makes a difference.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, great. Simka, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, let's close with a prayer glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and
1: to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.